Last time on Where in the World Are Those Utah Propositions. And when you're in chronic, constant pain, that's all you're looking for is just moments of, of reprieve. And that's what the cannabis did. Yeah, you know, Utah is a really compassionate state that has overwhelmingly supported Medicaid expansion from the very beginning. Utah is a state where you can, if you just look at the map of how our congressional districts are divided up, I mean, it's textbook gerrymandering. Like, I was so proud of my state. I was so proud of the voters that they came out to vote. And that was so, so important because they proved the point that we've been saying all along. You have to get out to vote. You have to shake off your apathy. Welcome back. You're listening to the third and final episode, the SBs, the HBs, and the BS. In the election of 1900, the Utah Constitution was amended to grant voters of this state the power to make and repeal laws. Let it be known, that amendment reads rather unequivocally, the legislative power of the state shall be vested, one, in the Senate and House of Representatives, which shall be designated the legislature of the state of Utah, two, in the people of the state of Utah. In 2018, the people of the state of Utah approved three propositions, none of which the legislature has been enthusiastic about enacting, and in some cases has outright disregarded replaced or tried to beat them to death with added amendments. How can they do this? How can the representatives we elected turn around and scorn the initiatives we told them to enact? Do they serve us or do we serve them? One begins to suspect that the direct legislation of the 1890s didn't create a legislative process that was all that direct. That the pure democracy we think we have isn't all that pure, or even democratic. That the power vested in the people by the Utah Constitution is not, after all, an equal vestment. state legislature has whatever power it wants to amend and repeal and overturn voter initiatives. Once again, that's Adam Brown, associate professor of political science at Brigham Young University and a faculty scholar with the Center for the Study of Elections and Democracy. The Utah Constitution gives a lot of reason for somebody who wants to run an initiative to get excited. You look at Article 6, the legislative department in the Constitution, and it starts off by saying the legislative power of the state shall be vested in a Senate and a House of Representatives, which shall be designated the legislature of the state of Utah and the people of the state of Utah, as provided in subsection 2. And if you only read to there, you'd get real excited. The trouble comes in subsection 2, where it says the legal voters of the state of Utah in the numbers, under the conditions, in the manner, and within the time provided by statute may initiate legislation or require a referendum on previously passed legislation. 
that's very broad. I asked Professor Brown if the state constitution grants legislative powers to voters through initiatives and referenda, and then the legislature either rejects a proposition or amends it to the point that it's no longer recognizable, does this not set up a constitutional crisis of sorts between the politicians and the people of the state of Utah? It, it, it doesn't create a constitutional crisis even if people don't like it. <laughs> it might be politically unwise for the legislature to immediately rewrite or even repeal something that's just been enacted by initiative. It might be bad policy for them to do that, but that doesn't make it unconstitutional. Now, presumably there is some point where they would cause a constitutional problem. When the constitution says that people have power to do this, as regulated by the legislature, presumably if they made it so burdensome to qualify that it became impossible, I would think at that point the Utah Supreme Court would force them to dial it back. But I don't know what that looks like. I don't know. What if they raised the, the signature requirement? They just changed it this past year to uh, for a direct initiative, what, 8% of active voters have to sign the petition. They made it 80 instead of 8. Would that do it for the Supreme Court? I have no idea. A law created through voter initiative is exactly equal to a law created by the legislature. And the legislature modifies bills that it recently passed all the time. What people are talking about when they say it's on an equal standing is they want it to be on an unequal standing. And that's a totally understandable impulse. So there are states that do that. There are states that say that if you have enacted a statute or amended the state constitution by initiative, then the state can't the state legislature can't mess with that for a certain period of time or unless they use certain procedures. And that can get you in hot water. California has that kind of provision. If you look at the state legislature, they're passing hundreds of bills every year in their 45-day session. It is an insane pace. And their own bills, because they pass them so quickly, they miss little details. And the most common speech you hear in the legislature is, this is a simple bill that cleans up a problem with a bill we passed two years ago that had some unforeseen problems in the text. And so they tweak it. The trouble with initiatives is they are equal to those bills. And the legislature is so accustomed to constantly revising things they passed just a year or two ago that they're going to look at that initiative and say, that's not how we would have passed it. We're going to get in here and rewrite this right now. Uh, it certainly makes the point that they are going to that they're going to mess with those initiatives just at least as much as they would mess with their own. The optics of this misunderstanding about initiatives is most obvious in the legislature's reaction to Prop 2, medical cannabis, and Prop 3, Medicaid expansion. Let's return to Christine Stenquist of the medical cannabis advocacy group, Truce. I think that the goal with Prop 2 and undermining it really was the fact that they wanted control of the issue. Um, the messaging that was coming from the opposition was that this was a recreational bill, and it wasn't. It wasn't a recreational bill. You still had to go to a physician. You still had to have a condition on the conditions list. What it actually did was allow more access. You know, with Prop 2, we would have had almost 40 dispensaries in our state, one dispensary for every county, one dispensary for every 150,000 residents, which means you're looking at a town like Salt Lake, six dispensaries would have been in Salt Lake. Uh, the compromise bill gave us seven licenses and 13 distribution points to the health department. Not really a compromise because the health department was never going to be able to distribute cannabis. 
So we only had seven dispensaries in the whole state to service a population, let's say just the patient population, anywhere from 40 to forty to 50,000 patients is very low. You look at a state like Arkansas has 35 dispensaries and it's same population as us and they're still underserving their community. So that was something that I was really frustrated with that was being lost in this whole debate over HB 3001 and Prop 2. Their replace and repeal really just tightened regulation. That's all that they were concerned about. They wanted to make it super tight so that it was hard to access it. I asked Chase Thomas, executive director of Alliance for a Better Utah, about the House bill Christine just mentioned. House bill, or HB, 3001. The more common name is the Utah Medical Cannabis Act. Um, And basically, it's the answer um, from the legislature to the people passing Proposition 2, which was the citizen initiative that set up a medical cannabis system for the state. Lawmakers had been working toward medical cannabis for a while. They felt that this went too far, was um, unsafe, was dangerous in their opinion in certain respects. And so they came together, put together with HB 3001 and passed it into a law about a month after Prop 2 was passed. Maybe you could tell us how the Utah Medical Cannabis Act differs from Prop 2 with the, with the voters passed. Uh, Well, there were a lot of changes. Um, Some had to do with the types of conditions that qualified for medical cannabis. Others had to do with how much they could have. Um, Another thing was whether you could grow it in your own home if you live too far away from a dispensary. But the biggest change was how it would be grown and dispensed. Um, So Proposition 2 set up a system that's done across the country is that there's going to be private growers, and private dispensers, uh, dispensaries. Because of Utah's fear uh, that that would lead to a black market across the state, they wanted to have tighter control over the medical cannabis. And so they wanted it to be under state control rather than private control. They created a what was called a state central fill. But you see, the legislature has run up against a major problem. How can you have a state-run facility distributing a federally banned drug? Central fill was just illegal. But when you're having the state decide to, to be part of a drug cartel of distributing an illegal substance, it was, it was really quite problematic. Two lawsuits were immediately filed in the wake of HB 3001, challenging various amendments made by the legislature, including the concept of a central fill, reduced numbers of dispensaries, doctors being forced to write prescriptions for a federally illegal substance, patient caps as low as 175 patients, access to whole plants instead of merely chemical extracts, and others. The plaintiffs of these lawsuits, which includes the People's Right, as well as an alliance between Truce and the Epilepsy Association of Utah, allege that the actions of the legislature and Governor Gary Herbert in ejecting Prop 2 in favor of their own more conservative bill disregards the will of the voters and is therefore unconstitutional. Uh, We'll have to see how that all works out in the courts. I asked Chase Thomas where this is likely to end. Looking into our crystal ball, did he think the will of the legislature or the will of the people would ultimately prevail regarding Prop 2. 
I think that's a mixed answer. I think that the will of the people will ultimately prevail in the sense that we are going to have medical cannabis in the state. Um, that was the thing that the legislature and the people were, were both aiming toward was to have medical cannabis because of the science that has proven that it's beneficial for certain conditions. Uh, so by March 2020, which is the goal, and it might be a little bit later than that, but next year we should have medical cannabis here in the state. I think that the legislature is going to prevail in some ports because they got what they wanted. Um, there's going to be less dispensaries than were originally envisioned. People still aren't going to be able to grow cannabis in their homes that they live too far from a dispensary, which is concerning because right now there will only be at least 14 when we start off. And so what about these rural states, these areas where they have to travel too far? Um, they say that they're going to have mobile couriers, but we don't know how that's actually going to work yet. Um, so I think it remains to be seen whether these other additional changes ultimately prevail and whether they work out or if we go even closer to Prop 2 over time with the upcoming legislative session. We'll see what changes they make then. I think the bigger question is moving forward to another initiatives, does this backtracking on HB 3001, the backtracking on Medicaid expansion, will it show legislators that the people actually do know what they're talking about through these initiatives? They have experts, they have attorneys that work on these for months, sometimes years to put these initiatives together. They know what they're talking about maybe just as well or more than the legislators who don't have specific expertise in these areas. Um, so will it signal to lawmakers that they should stay away from messing with initiatives in the future? Ultimately, the power of government rests in the people, whether that's through passing our own laws through initiatives or by replacing the people who are in the legislature. Um, if people are really upset about what happened to these propositions, then they can express their will by changing the people who messed with the propositions. I asked Christine Stenquist the same question. I don't think they will allow Prop 2 to be reenacted. That would be, um, we're working towards improving. I'll be honest, Prop 2 needed improvement. It always did. Um, and every piece of legislation, honestly, will continually to need improvement because we go into this thinking one thing. We think we have an idea on how to solve a problem. And when you get into the muck and guck of all of it, you see like, oh, I didn't anticipate that. When you have more buy-in from community players, you get an idea of the problem from a larger scope. So I, I would like to, to see a little bit more happen, you know. It looks like the backroom deals between both advocacy and opposition groups that took place even before Prop 2 was voted on are likely going to win the day. Unless the Utah Supreme Court rules that the actions of the legislature are unconstitutional, which isn't likely to happen, our politicians will succeed in heavily amending a proposition we passed, which will have the effect of weakening Utah's access to medical cannabis treatments. Some will say that this is a compromise, that this is the lifeblood of politics. And hey, maybe they're right. But to those of us non-politicians, it can look downright dismissive. And when those of us who are politicians make big mistakes when overturning voter propositions, mistakes like recruiting state health agencies to distribute illegal drugs in the case of Prop 2, 
Or, in the case of Prop 3, spending more money to give less Utahns health insurance. That dismissiveness starts to look ridiculous at best, and outright incompetent, or even vindictive, at worst. The legislature repealed Proposition 3, the full Medicaid expansion, and replaced it with SB 96, which is the legislature's version. It's a really complicated four-part plan, but the basics is it's a, it's a partial Medicaid expansion, so it doesn't apply to as many people, and there's a lot of strings and loopholes and things attached. Once again, that's Stacy Stanford, health policy analyst at Utah Health Policy Project on Senate Bill 96, SB 96. Proposition 3 was very, very clean and straightforward. It followed the law. SB 96 is asking for a lot of things outside the legal boundaries. So it has to ask for these waivers to get permission to color outside the lines. And so we get less money from the feds, which increases the burden on the state. But in exchange, we get what the legislature is calling flexibility. And that flexibility manifests in the ability to cut programs in Medicaid and services in Medicaid, which are typically not allowed. And before they even completed the submission process, the federal government came back and said no on two of the key features of phase two. But that's good news because that gets us closer to where we want to be because grassroots advocates and lobbyists and people that work for really great organizations pushed and fought really hard for what we are calling the fallback plan. And the fallback plan has the full Medicaid expansion. So we'll stop locking out 60,000 people. We finally cover everybody that should have been eligible under Prop 3, but they're still asking for some of those broken bridge elements. Um, Recently, Utah's Medicaid director told members of the legislature that in refusing to enact Prop 3, the state was actually losing money, that $2.5 million a month more is being spent now than would have been spent under the full expansion that voters passed. Can you explain that? How is that possible? Yeah, exactly. So because we're paying 32% of all of these Medicaid expenses instead of paying 10%, we're losing a lot of money. And so it gets even worse. The Medicaid director said 2.5. We checked the math. We sent those numbers to one of our national partners. They ran the numbers, and we are losing $6.6 million per month, not 2.5, which means that we could cover all 60,000 of those people who were being left out and still save a million dollars per month compared to what we're spending now. So... They're arguing that it's just not fiscally sustainable to fully expand Medicaid. And that argument is ludicrous because they are throwing away money. It's very ideological. And then it's just, it is partisan. I mean, it's nicknamed Obamacare. It was, it was a signature achievement of a Democratic president. And it became a red versus blue issue. And that has changed a little bit. There's a lot of Republican states who are signing on now. But there are still 14 stragglers. And they're all Republican-led states. This is, it's a real partisan football. And it's something that is hurting the state budget and hurting the people of our state. The repeal and replace health care bill that the legislature created in order to overturn Prop 3 is standing on shaky ground. And don't take my word for it. 
State Senator Alan Christensen of North Ogden, who sponsored SB 96, begrudgingly admitted of Prop 3, we probably have to implement the thing. I think he's right. I think that we're on the way to getting a lot closer to what the voters wanted. If we don't end up fully where we started, I really think that we're going to end up very close. And it's going to take a lot of work still to get there, and we still have a bumpy road, but I really think we're going to win in the end. So Prop 2 is likely going to fall to the political machinations of the legislature, at least in regards to the availability and access to the medical cannabis provisions we passed. Prop 3, on the other hand, due to fallback provisions and insufficient repeal and replace bills, is likely to hold. How about Prop 4 and the Anti-Gerrymandering Independent Redistricting Commission? Once again, Lauren Simpson, Policy Director at Better Utah. So Prop 4, right now, so far nothing's happened on it, Um, and I think that has a lot of people feeling very nervous. Um... As we all know, the 2020 census will happen, and then in the following year, the legislature will have the responsibility of drawing those new maps. State Senator Todd Weiler of Davis and Salt Lake counties said of Prop 4, I'd like to see the courts rule on the constitutionality of it. I asked Lorne if she thinks Prop 4 is in danger of being replaced by the legislature, and if they make the attempt, what she thinks the outcome will be since openly taking the side of gerrymandering seems like a rather unpopular position. One would think. Um, So I think there are two questions there. One is, is Prop 4 in danger of being um, repealed and replaced in some way, like Prop 2 and Prop 3 were? I think that's likely. I think the danger there is high, um, because the legislature has the ability to do that, and there, there are certainly no legal ramifications that they would face. For that, um, politically, I, I think you have a lot of people who feel like they're in a supermajority, so they can do what they want. And then to Senator Weiler's comment about a court ruling on the constitutionality of Prop 4, what he's referring to, um, the Utah Constitution gives the legislature the exclusive ability to draw districts. He said in the past that he feels like introducing an independent redistricting commission to propose maps to the legislature is in some way an infringement upon the legislature's authority. I think that's a bunk argument. Um, It makes no sense to me. One, because (laughs) there's nothing that I'm aware of that says that the legislature has original jurisdiction, you know, like it can't go to any other advisory body first. And two, because an independent commission isn't actually implementing any of the maps that they draw. The legislature has the final say. You know, the buck stops with them at the end of the day. All this does is introduce a new layer of accountability into that process where, you know, the independent commission brings forward their map or, you know, a handful of maps to the legislature and says, okay, here are our proposals. Here's why. It gives a really detailed rundown of how these fulfill Um, the law that was passed by Utahns, Prop 4, and then the legislature can accept those, it can deny them. It can deny all of them. And all it has to do is write a report, you know, saying, here's why we're denying it, and here's how our new maps better comply with the law that was passed by Utah voters, Prop 4. So really, it's just um, 
all it is is adding some sunshine into that process. Populist legislators of the late 1800s championed the idea that the people should have a greater voice in our democracy, putting issues before voters in Utah, California, Washington, South Dakota, Oklahoma, Missouri, Montana, and having their will become the law of the land was seen as the purest form of democratic institution. Break out the champagne, America. We are no longer a democracy in name only. Well, not so fast, America. Put that cork back in the bottle and resign yourself to flat champagne. When state legislatures, who are constitutionally obligated to share their lawmaking power, kick to the curb our voter propositions, or assault them to the degree they're no longer recognizable, or replace our bills with ones of their own making that nobody wanted, what has happened to that pure democracy? And perhaps more importantly, what kind of effects does that have on a voting public who is already depressingly apathetic about getting out to the polls? I don't get it. Why vote? I was told by one of those persons. Politicians are all crooked. They just do what they want anyway. Why even vote when they can ignore us like this? I put that question to Professor Brown of the Center for the Study of Elections and Democracy. Here's what he said. If you're only showing up to vote when there's an initiative on the ballot that you care about, you're doing democracy really wrong. For one thing, the initiatives are only occasionally dealing with major issues, but the legislature is passing hundreds of bills every year. Go to what you can and especially vote and participate in the nominations. Because in so much of the state, your district for the legislature is foregone, but that doesn't mean you can't shape who the party's nominee that's going to win that party race. And in more of the state than we like to remember, it is a swing district. We've had Republican control of the legislature since the late 70s, but it has not always looked like this. It's gone anywhere from the mid-60% range to the low-80% range. And that's still a good 15-20% within the wiggle room we've been in in the past 20 years. Elections matter, and, and representation matters. The second answer to the question is this. Why should you still show up? Uh, initiatives are best thought of not as a way to make law, but as a way to pressure the legislature. If these initiatives of medical marijuana and Medicaid had not passed in 2018, the legislature would probably not have done anything on these issues. Now, sure, they rewrote the law, but they still created, they still maintained a medical marijuana policy that's different from what the people passed, but far closer to what they passed than what we would have had without anything. And the same can be said of their efforts to rewrite the Medi the Medicaid expansion that the, that the people passed through initiative. Until 2018, when we actually had all of these initiatives qualify, that was the only way you saw the initiative used. You saw in 2000, what, 8, 9, 10 in that neighborhood, Utahns for ethical government, threatening initiatives, gathering signatures for initiatives. And though they didn't get everything they wanted, the Utah legislature, over a series of bills over a couple of sessions, went further than they wanted to go to try to get ahead of these initiatives and cut them off. So if people are looking what the legislature did with medical marijuana and Medicaid and thinking, why did I even vote? Well, just bear in mind, you got something. It may not have been what you wanted, but this is always going to be, at least for the foreseeable future, going to be a conservative, very Republican state. And if you can push them on those issues by getting the initiative passed, take the win. I also asked this of Josh Cantor. He's the founder and board president of Alliance for a Better Utah. 
Here's what he said. Well, I feel like I hear the argument all the time, why should I vote? And whether that's in response to progressives being elected or Democrats being elected or the makeup of the legislature uh, or the attacks on Propositions 2, 3, and 4 that were all passed by the legislature in 2018 and then, of course, attacked by the legislature in the following uh, legislative sessions, you know, the answer to me is is really a number of things. I mean, first and foremost, not voting is probably the dumbest response, you know, you can have because our democracy counts on people getting educated and going out and voting. It still is the way our democracy works. And it's the only thing in place to protect our democracy. You know, the reality is politics is a long game. And it's it's really not about the last election. And it's not about did my candidate win? And it's not about did my proposition win or survive the legislative session? It's about you know, systemic change over a long period of time. But that doesn't mean that you don't keep trying, regardless of which position or what side of the aisle you're on or anything else, that you don't keep trying and you don't keep participating and uh, and work to pass these ballot initiatives, which do have long-term impact. I know a lot of people are really discouraged about the legislative uh, actions around particularly propositions two and three, medical marijuana, Medicaid expansion. But I think also, again, people have to look at What's the benefit of what's happened here? I mean, look at really systemically, again, what's happened. We've got three ballot initiatives that passed in the state of Utah, one of which affirmatively opposed by multiple groups, um, all of which to some extent were opposed by the legislature. And so the idea that they passed and sent a message to the legislature is really important. And I think you have to look at even on Prop 2, where a lot of people are upset about the compromise um, Medicaid expansion, a lot of people upset about the requirements that the legislature put into there. But the reality is we wouldn't be having these conversations if those things didn't pass. So we can argue about what's happening at the margin, but we got further than we otherwise did. So regardless, again, of kind of how you feel about the different policy issues, the fact that we've gone from a state that has been so unwelcoming to ballot initiatives to having five ballot initiatives in the course of two election cycles is incredible progress regardless of how they come out. In the wake of the 2018 midterms and the state politicians who have taken unprecedented steps to interfere with and overrule the will of the people, the answer is not less voting. It's more voting. It's not discouragement and acceptance, but indignation and resolve. They may hold the reins of power, but like in any democracy, we outnumber them. We are ultimately responsible for giving those reins to persons of our choosing. One attorney representing the legislature and its challenges to Prop 2 outlined the real solution to a problem like this. Legislators serve at the whim of their constituents, he said. The real check on the legislature is the voters' ability to remove them from office. If we don't like what our legislators are doing, say, for example, if they were to make backroom deals to dismiss a voter initiative on medical cannabis, or overturn a proposition that would extend Medicaid coverage to tens of thousands of Utahns at an added cost of $6 million a month, or undermine attempts to draw fair district lines in order to hold on to their power. If that's the case, we as voters should become more activated. Rather than accepting our position as second-class lawmakers, we should tell these elected representatives of ours, if you're going to dismiss the will of your constituents, then you shouldn't be representing the will of your constituents any longer. We don't hold our representatives accountable by staying home. We hold them accountable by defiantly going to the polls and showing them the way out. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you.
Apathy won't fix this. Finding legislators who will fight for us, not against us, will. We are not too stupid, too ignorant, too infantile, or too partisan to self-govern, as some of our politicians would have you believe. Take up your pen, or your polling button, or your protest sign, or whatever, and go out and show them. I get asked pretty often, what can people do? And and I think first and foremost, you know, everybody's got to remember again, the simplest thing, go vote, go register to vote, go vote. If you're going to be 18 by the next election, you can already register to vote and, and make sure you get out there and vote. Um, get involved, pick an issue that you care about, pick an organization that you like, get some friends who you like, whether it's Alliance for Ready Utah, whether it's Equality Utah, Planned Parenthood, ACLU, you pick your group, it doesn't matter, clean air, um, pick your issue, pick your group, go get involved, go to the rallies. This stuff feels helpless sometimes. And at the end of the day, the answer is it's not helpless. It's how change happens. It's how we move our democracy forward. It's how we move our society forward. And it's important. And then when you're done doing all that, remember, go vote. Vote. Vote in November. Vote in primaries. Vote. I think it's really important for citizens to become educated on the issues, to express themselves, to not be shy about their opinions, to debate them, and ultimately to exercise their franchise by voting. Get out and vote. Yeah, go vote. If last year proved nothing, it proved that voting matters, so make sure you get out and vote. Remember next year, get out and vote. Please vote. Please vote for people who support good health policy, who listen to you, who have compassion for people. Vote for good people. The fight for the propositions we voted for in the 2018 midterms isn't over. It may not be for many months to come, but when it is, when the dust settles, we'll be there to issue a follow-up episode. Until then, I'm J.P. Romney, in association with Alliance for a Better Utah, and this has been Where in the World Are Those Utah Propositions?